Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Uh, Mrs. B and I are doing great, <clears throat> having a great time here in Clearwater, Florida, hanging with the kids, enjoying the beautiful weather. And today, being a Saturday, we're stacking a couple shows up here so we can uh, deliver them on time as advertised. But after uh, I'm done here with this podcast, uh, Mrs. B and I are going to meet the kids over at a, just a gorgeous little community called Dunedin, Florida, which is not far from Clearwater Beach. And there's a Celtic, a Scottish Celtic festival going on in Dunedin. So Mrs. B and I are going to go and uh, connect to our Scottish roots and enjoy the afternoon and then have a barbecue. Wow. I didn't know you had some Scottish roots in here. I got a little Scottish in me too. How about that? Well, I didn't either. Um, it, really interesting. My mother's maiden name was Scott. <laughs> Imagine that. And obviously my, my father's side of the family is Bischoff. So all we ever heard about growing up I sound like an you know ancestry.com commercial, which is basically what this is. Not paid for, by the way. This is just riffing. Um, but all we ever heard about was the German side of our family. And we weren't very close to my mother's side of the family either. They were kind of a dysfunctional sort. And long story short, when ancestry.com came out and I started doing my research and then my sister really got into it and we found out that uh, we took that DNA test here, uh, 83 weeks as a part of a promotion that we we're doing, for, I think, for Ancestry.com. And lo and behold, I'm far more Scottish and Irish than I am German. Well, how about that? Yeah, yeah so I've, I may change my name to O'Leary or something at some point in time or O'Hara. Eric O'Hara's got kind of a good ring to it. Dude, let me just say, if you if you can sneak back in to WWE under the name Eric O'Hara... And, and it's in the observer in 2021 that there's a new member of the raw writing staff named Eric O'Hara. <laughs> it would be so fucking great. Oh, it wouldn't be hard to get that printed either. Oh. <laughs> couple, couple little well-placed, you know, comments to, uh, some of the more Gabby, you know, people who like to stay in touch and feed Dave shit would, uh, I'm sure they'd run with it and, before we know, we'd be reading about it and where Eric O'Hara is from and what his background is and why the writing team is upset and nobody's met him yet, but blah, 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 blah. It would be like three weeks worth of uh, content for Dave. You know, we're going to do uh, something different this week and our fans, you know, who, who are hardcore listeners to the show really like these particular shows. It's essentially a Reddit AMA. Ask Eric anything is our topic today. But I, I wanted to talk about something before we get into the show. So we, we've got a lot of great questions. And if you want to participate with our show and ask Eric a question, by all means, follow us on Twitter. That's the best way to do it. It's at 83 weeks. And um, next time we do one of these, just throw up hashtag ask Eric anything, tag us at 83 weeks, and you never know, we might ask your question. Of course, we're going to be doing another one of these in February. So if we don't get your question this time, just follow us and be ready. But as we're getting ready to, uh, let, let our listeners ask a bunch of questions. I wanted to ask a question. You and I have talked recently about, you know, what your car situation is where, uh, you've got this badass sports sedan, you've got the old pickup truck and you're thinking, Hey, it might be time to get something new, maybe do something different. And you've sort of told me, it doesn't make sense for me to have a sports car in the middle of fucking Wyoming. 
So maybe more of a, a, a utilitarian style vehicle. This a couple of weeks ago, Elon Musk revealed the Tesla truck. Have you had a chance to see this thing? What do you think about it? I I did see it, and you know I, I haven't seen. You know I saw the the clips on television about uh, Elon Musk, you know, debuting this truck uh, that I guess goes for like forty thousand dollars base sticker price, which isn't really very expensive for an electronic vehicle, which is kind of cool. It is electric, right? Yeah, yeah. So. <clears throat> I didn't know if it was electric and, and, and gas, you know, kind of a hybrid or not. But if it's a straight electric car, that's pretty inexpensive a vehicle. And I was kind of interested in it. And then I saw the clips on television, and it's just like it's the ugliest thing I've ever seen. I just can't see myself driving around in it. It's kind of cool and futuristic and maybe a four-wheel version of the stealth bomber in a way in terms of its appearance. But when I saw them, when I saw Elon Musk as an assistant on stage and they were demonstrating the strength of the bulletproof glass, which I don't know why you need bulletproof glass in a pickup truck and whatever. But and they threw a metal ball at the at the windows, not once, but twice. And both windows shattered that. Yeah, I'll just wait a while before I get too interested in that. I, uh, I bought one. You did. Yeah. I mean, do you have it? Do you have no, it? In, no, no, no. Here's the, the driveway. I wish. Here's the deal. I want the all-wheel version, and I want the tri-motor souped-up version. What that means, of course, is it gives you a longer range. So instead of only being able to go two or three hundred miles, you can go five hundred miles. But the and you can obviously tow more. I think like fourteen thousand pounds. But the really fun thing about this to me is that this giant fucking monstrosity goes zero to sixty in two point nine seconds. Get out of town. Are you kidding me? It's just like fucking supercar speed, but it's a $69,000 pickup truck that you can turn into a camper or completely cover up the back bed where it looks like an SUV. And yes, it does look like a stealth bomber had a baby with a DeLorean and you know, somehow they're on the set of blade runner and Tron. I don't know. I'm into it. I think it's fucking weird and cool. And I was like, uh, wait a minute. I can reserve my spot for a hundred bucks. I'm doing this. You know what though? Here's the truth. Now I'm more interested now because I didn't know the performance aspect of it. Like I said, I just saw the clips of, on television and they didn't get into any of the performance and I haven't researched it, but I mean, first of all, you know, the mile, if you can go 500 miles legit, that's not bad. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a pretty good charge. But if it's that fast and has that much torque that it could pull 14,000 pounds, I have a whole new I'm, – I'm going to take a whole new look at that because that's pretty awesome. And as far as the price tag goes, dude, go to any Ford lot, go to any GMC lot, go to any Dodge lot and look at some of their top-of-the-line pickups. Those things are like 75 and 85 grand now. I mean it's ridiculous how much – I, the the last Mercedes I bought, I, I bought a CLS 550, was just under 80 grand, and now you can't get a a, a nice, you know, you can get a you know baseline utility pickup truck, but for a nice four wheel drive pickup truck that tows, you know, and hauls stuff and is reasonably comfortable inside and, and and appointed well, you're looking at 75 grand minimum. So I I think 
I think you're onto something, bro. You, might, I hope you have it by the time Mrs. B and I come to visit you over the Christmas holidays, because I could see you and I two around in that thing, doing our own version of kind of like the Dukes of Hazard. No, no. Here's could, the thing. We could, we could put an 83 week sticker on it, and just <laughs> dress it all up. <laughs> That's the thing, though. The the fucking thing's not out until 2022. Oh hell, I doubt you and I will be talking to each other by then. <laughs> That's a long time. <laughs> well, well, I'll send you pictures, but I do think you should throw it in your Google machine and look up the camper accessory. Uh, when I saw that, I was like, this is the most Eric Bischoff thing ever. So when you sort of low key shit on it, I was like, well, he just hadn't seen enough of this. I don't think so. All right. No, I'm digging into it, brother. Enough car talk. I was just curious because I know if you're going to be in the truck market and you like the speed of your Mercedes, well, here's this Lamborghini speed in a pickup truck. I dig it. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and jump right into it. We posted on Twitter. If you've got a question you'd like to ask Eric, by all means fire away here and use the hashtag ask Eric anything. Uh, I'm pretty excited about this one, uh, because it gives us a chance, uh, to ask a lot of different questions that we might not normally have an opportunity to cover, uh, you know, some of the topics that maybe we don't think have enough meat on the bone to do an hour and a half or two hours, or sometimes three hours. Uh, so let's go ahead and, uh, and jump right into it. Mike Whitaker writes, do you think WWE and AEW could ever work together like WWE and ECW did? Um, no. And I think historically, uh, and even, you know, if you talk to anybody that's worked in WWE for any length of time, I think everybody understands that as a rule. Vince McMahon and WWE generally don't play well with others. Right. They just don't. And and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. You know, one of the things I think is ha, has led to so much of WWE's success from a business perspective. This has nothing to do with creative, okay? So, you know, keep your creative opinions and your opinions of finishes and matchups and all that and talent. Put that all off to the, off to the side for a moment. But just from a purely business perspective, one of the things that WWE has done so right over the decades now is protecting their intellectual, not only protecting their intellectual property, but aggregating intellectual property. And that's why the WWE is such a a, a huge, the WWE network is such a huge success. And I think probably the cornerstone for their new financial model, new meaning within the streaming era, Whereas traditional pay-per-view, as you know, you and I both knew it, or, or I in particular knew it, you know, at the peak of my career, you know, pay-per-view revenue was at minimum uh, a 25% of your your gross revenues. Whereas traditional pay-per-view now, I think, is much less significant due to the fact that you can own and control your own streaming platform, which is what WWE has done. So I, th- I think WWE has done such a great job again, protecting their intellectual property. And I was on the receiving end of that. You know, I, I think one of the reasons that Vince and WWE and Jerry McDivitt at all, you know, fought so hard with WCW, you know, back during the Monday Night Wars with regard to our trademark and copyright issues is, you know, Vince wanted to do everything that he could do and did to protect his marks. Even, and I'll argue, you know, he he was able to achieve success in that regard that he didn't deserve. Uh, Scott Hall, you know, we've touched on it before. 
you know, they're, they're, one of their key arguments is that the look, you know, Scott Hall, when he arrived as, you know, what went on to become the NWO and Razor Ramon were confusingly similar in their appearances. And there were too many, you know, characteristics that were similar. And I, I pointed out before, if you go back and look at the diamond stud, you know, I would argue that the diamond stud was creatively a large part of the foundation for the Razor Ramon character, including the toothpick and the grease back, grease back hair and the whole nine yards. That that didn't that wasn't created in WWE. On the other hand, WWE successfully um, w- was able to defend that mark. And here's something that people don't really understand. Um, when you have a trademark, it, and you know, you've, you've acquired a couple of trademarks. We have a trademark for 83 weeks, for example, and I know you have other trademarks. Getting a trademark is a process, and yep. it can be an expensive process, depending on what your mark is and how many objections there are to it by others who, who may feel that you're infringing on their marks. Um, but let's just say you get by without a lot of challenges and not, not too many issues. Uh, yeah, at a minimum, I think you're probably looking at five to seven grand normally, and that's if everything goes great. Um, but let's assume you you get through that process unscathed and you haven't had to invest fifty or a hundred thousand dollars in defending your mark application. Once you get that trademark, it's incumbent upon you as a trademark holder, if you want to hold that mark, to defend it. And if you don't defend it from a legal perspective, that is almost the same thing as abandoning it. What does that mean? So let's say 83 weeks, you and I have the trademark for that. And all of a sudden, somebody decides they're going to do an 83 weeks plus or some version of 83 weeks that is so close or reasonably close that it could possibly create confusion in the marketplace. If, If we don't defend against that, and we allow others to infringe on that mark and over a period of time have demonstrated that we're not really defending it, once we would try to defend it, we would lose. Over a period of time, if the trademark office you know, looks at all the other marks that have come out since yours and you haven't spent any time trying to defend it uh, or any resources and it appears that you just don't really care, you can't selectively all of a sudden decide you care. So it's, it, it, you know, getting a trademark is, is challenging sometimes, uh, and it can be very expensive. I spent nearly $200,000 of my own money um, acquiring the trademark for Buffalo Bill Cody beer because I was challenged by Buffalo Trace whiskey and a whole host of other people that came out of the woodwork once the you know, uh, patent trademark office published my intent to, to trademark Buffalo Bill Cody beer. Once I did that, people came crawling out of the woodwork and challenged it. Well, I had to defend against each one of those. And it ended up costing me $200,000, $225,000, somewhere in that area. Now, that's just the beginning. Now, whenever someone comes out with something that's Buffalo Bill Cody or Buffalo related, the U.S. Or the Patent and Trademark Office sends me a notification. And now I have to defend it or it's considered to be abandoned. So it's a, it's a tricky thing. And I think that's why WWE, people, now I'm circling back to what I really wanted to say. When people see how aggressively WWE 
defends their marks. Sometimes it looks like they're bullies. Sometimes it, it looks like they're overreaching, you know, whatever. But in fact, if they don't do that, they're at risk for losing that mark. And that's one of the reasons they're so aggressive about it. Um, though all that being said, keep in mind, now I'm going to the core question. WWE had a financial interest in ECW. Some people know that. Some people don't. I think Bruce could probably tell you a lot more about it than I could because Bruce was there when it was going on. Vince was a silent partner in ECW. So the motivation to work with ECW was much different than it would be with a completely autonomous company that Vince didn't have a financial interest in like AEW. So unless WWE were to own a piece of AEW, and I, who knows what the future holds in that regard. But unless that were to happen, then the answer would be absolutely no way. We, uh, you and I haven't talked about, you know, the AEW NXT stuff in a few weeks, uh, a couple of weeks ago for the very first time, NXT beat AEW and immediately I started getting tagged in a bunch of tweets you know, as was Tony Khan and Cody Rhodes. Hey, when are you guys going to do a podcast with Conrad called seven weeks? Do you think it's, um, you know, and I know that I, I understand that's just sort of the nature of social media, but if you go back and you look at, you know, the beginning of nitro, it wasn't just, you know, nitro debuts and it's dominant every single week. Sure. There was a big debut and. Raw wasn't on the air that night. So Nitro does a big number and then the war starts, but it's a long time before the dominance of Nitro becomes a real thing. Do you think people are just having fun with that? Or do you think there was an expectation? I mean, when you see that, you know, there's however many weeks in a row it was seven weeks of AEW having more viewers and then they lose and they lose by 30,000 viewers you're uniquely qualified to comment on that. What's your, what's your takeaway? I, it, it does. I'm unfazed by it all. I don't think any of it means anything right now. You know, talk to me in a year. Let, let's have the same conversation a year from now and see where things are at. And, and for the record, you know, I grossly underestimated the viewership for AEW prior to the premiere. It, well, we We're both did, you know, we should talk about that off air. You and I, at the time you were still with WWE and one day you and I are just shooting the shit on the phone and you said, what do you think? And I gave you a number and you were like, well, I'm surprised to hear that, but that's the exact number I had. And we both landed on the same number and AEW beat that number in week one. And, and that was way more people than you or I thought would be there. Yeah, and, and that says a lot for AEW. It says a lot for the, the groundwork that they laid, the buzz that they created. I think whether the, it was by design or by default, the you know promoting a couple of those big shows, the rapid sellout, I think it could trace it back to the very beginning. I think the, the interest that they created, the buzz that especially the Bucks created on their YouTube channel long before any of this stuff, really created a foundation to build upon, which was really smart. Like I said, I don't know if they sat back and said, okay, you know, two years out or a year out from the launch of AEW and, and you know, come, you know, doing a deal with Tony Khan and so forth. If a year prior to that, their strategy was, okay, let's, let's do this. Let's be really smart. 
let's create a YouTube channel and build a huge foundation and a base. And then once we do that, let's promote our own show. And look, they captured, they meaning AEW, I think Cody, the Bucks, and, and everybody else, whoever else was involved. I don't know that organization that well or well at all. Um, whatever they did, they did fantastically well. And I think part of it was timing. I think the market was ready um, for something different. I think that they, had, as I said, they had built a great foundation in social media, which kind of primed the pump. And just all of those good moves, those smart moves, again, designer default doesn't matter. The end result is the same. And then, you know, their first big show in Chicago and selling it out as quickly as they did and all the things that they did right um, has landed them where they are now. But let's let, – and I'm nothing but praise for them. I'm, i got to be so careful about what I say and how I say it because people misinterpret me sometimes. And a lot of that's my fault because I – I speak in sound bites sometimes, or sometimes I'll go on and on and on like I am right now, and the message gets lost. I'm, I am amazed at what AEW has been able to accomplish. Nothing, nothing short of, you know, proud for all of them. Really am. But let's be realistic. They're still coming in under a million viewers a week, and they're coming in under a million viewers a week on a major cable outlet that typically does a bigger number than that. More importantly, and we've touched on this before, they're delivering under a million viewers a week within a genre, sports entertainment, professional wrestling, whatever you want to call it, that is typically not really an advertiser-friendly platform. So while those numbers look good, or look great, look fantastic, from a competitive position with WWE, from an ad sales position, particularly in prime time, it's not a pretty number yet. It's a good number. It's a solid number. And if they can build upon that number and grow it like Nitro did, and I think here's a really here's a better comparison. I think if you go back and look at the debut of Nitro unopposed, I think we came in somewhere around like a 2.5 or 2.6, which even back then represented almost 2 million viewers, 2 million plus viewers, just to put things in perspective. But once Raw came back and we were going head to head, we were living in that 2.4, 2.5, 2.8, 2.9, 3.0, 3.3, 3. We were growing. Our, our audience was building as opposed to staying flat. And what I've seen so far from AEW is their their numbers are essentially flat. You can't look at 30,000. It's a rounding error. I mean, <laughs> ratings is such a kabuki measurement anyway, but 30,000 viewers here, 15,000 viewers there on a week-to-week -week basis, that is a rounding error, error that means absolutely nothing. It's basically a flat line. If AEW can go from where they are now, which is I think the last week that I looked at was around 950,000 viewers or so, if they can start building upon that where six months from now or a year from now, they're up to 1.5 million. Now you've got a viable, you now you've got a viable business because other networks are going to look at that and go, wow, that audience is growing. Yeah. It's maybe only 1.5 million. And for a wrestling show, that's a little tough because the, the, the pool of advertisers are pretty small for wrestling as opposed to a, a theatrical release or, or not a theatrical release, but a, a, a movie of the week or a drama series or something like that, which advertisers are much more comfortable in. 
But if they can grow that number, that's why I said when you started this up, talk to me in a year. If they've gone from 950,000 viewers on average, you know, fluctuations week to week, but over the course of six or eight months, they've built upon that 950 and now they're doing 1.2, 1.3, 1.4, kind of like Nitro did. Now that now they've actually got something that's real. But until that happens, yeah, it's still kind of a wait and see for me. And the same is true with Next. I, you know, I, I don't know what where USA's head is at, but you know, I can't imagine that USA Network is you know thrilled or WWE could be thrilled with a number as low as you know seven, eight hundred thousand viewers that they've been getting kind of consistently. It's not a big number, particularly when you look. You know, here's the advantage that Next has that AEW doesn't have. NXT is being co-promoted on Monday Night Raw, yep. which has been around since the beginning of time, it feels like. It's being promoted by some of the biggest superstars in the world. It 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 features some of the top talent within the AW, excuse me, WWE occasionally, as we saw a couple of weeks ago. And it's also be, be, being promoted indirectly on SmackDown, which is a Fox Network you know, series. So with all of the additional promotion that NXT is getting, the fact that it's, you know, hovering under a million viewers a week on average, I think has to be pretty disappointing. And the same thing, if that number doesn't grow, if it just starts flatlining, let's, take a look at television across the board. I'm sorry, Conrad, you caught me in a morning where I'm just chock full of caffeine. But if if you look across the boards at television, most television properties that have been around for you know four, five, six seasons, those their numbers are slowly and gradually deteriorating. That's the problem with linear or traditional television, cable or network, is fewer and fewer and fewer people are watching it because of all of the other ways to you know entertain yourself. You don't no longer have to you know watch whatever is on cable. You know, tune in TV or must see TV is a thing of the past because of streaming. And as a result of that, fewer and fewer people are watching watching television. But if 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 there's not some growth and those numbers continue to deteriorate, I think the future for both of those properties on television, in terms of it being real long term, is yeah, I think it's pretty tentative. Well, since we're going down the rabbit hole in AEW, they made some headlines a few weeks ago when they announced the January event that I guess is going to be in conjunction with Jericho's uh, boat party. It's uh, AEW's Bash at the Beach. What do you think when you saw one of your old creations pop up on the AEW purview? You know, what's funny is you and I are going to be on the Jericho cruise, I think, right? Yeah. Well, that's going to be fun. I can't imagine you and I in a boat surrounded by wrestling fans for five days. Holy cow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Dude, it's, it's a who's who it's going to be AEW wrestling matches every day. Like, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how you couldn't enjoy that. No, I'm going to enjoy it. It's going to be a fun trip. I'm actually looking forward to it. I, I didn't mean to sound like I wasn't. It's going to be, you know, it's, it's like Starcast on a boat. Yeah. There you go. That's going to be a blast. But what did I think of it? Um, mixed emotions. One, I, I was excited. My first reaction was, oh, that's great, because it's such a great, you know, it's got such great history. It's a legacy, you know, within the wrestling community. It's a, you know, when you say bash at the beach, everybody 
knows what that is. You know, Hulk Hogan turning heel, Bash at the Beach. You know, so many big things happened at Bash at the Beach. So it's it was really one of WCW's tentpole pay-per-views, and there was a lot of brand equity in that in that brand or in that pay-per-view brand. So I, I was excited that somebody had the foresight um, to go, hey, this is available. Damn, take that, uh, number one. But then, you know, the flip side, and I, I, you know, I don't know that I'm right about this. It's just a personal feeling. And just because it's my personal feeling doesn't necessarily mean it's right. But to me, in the long run, you know, if it's a one-off, then I think it's awesome. But I think AEW needs to be at least aware that they came out of the shoot by, yeah, we're going to be an alternative to the WWE. Well, great. That's fantastic because I think that's what the market wants. I think that's one of the reasons why AEW enjoyed so much immediate success is because the market was ready for something different and a unique, you know, a more unique presentation, not same old, same old. Um, but if AEW you know, continues to compare itself to WCW subtly or not so much, in this case, not so much by, you know, em- embracing one of their WCW's biggest brands, I think they run the risk over time if they do it too often. It's not going to happen just because they do it once or even if they just keep that one pay-per-view and they do it annually. It's not going to happen as long as they're doing enough other things to differentiate themselves, to truly present something that the audience recognizes as a real alternative and not kind of sort of an alternative because we have different talent and, you know, we swear once in a while and, you know, we, you know, you'll see blood on our show and you won't see blood on theirs. Those are not, those, those, those things don't differentiate you enough over the long term, you know, for people to go, wow, I'd I'd rather watch this than that. There's got to be something else. And I think one of the something else things that AEW is doing extremely well is the quality of their interviews and their promos and the emotion that goes along with it. I said before I went to WWE, I said it while I was in WWE, um, and I'll say it, you know, until something changes. But the overly scripted, generic, you know, filter through the eyes of one person, you know, King's English that you hear so often in WWE promos is one of the reasons I think the product is stale and it's not growing. It's just too much of the same. Every promo feels this. The words are different, but it's shot the same. It looks the same. It sounds the same. The, the creative approach to the promo is it goes through a series of filters and we all know who those are and who that person ultimately is that determines whether something is, you know, makes error or not. And until that changes, nothing will change. And that's one of the things that AEW has done so well is they've capitalized on the, you know, the abilities of guys like Chris Jericho, who's probably one of the best in the industry in the last 10 or 15 years, to go out, or, or longer, really, to go out and really cut a compelling, interesting, entertaining promo that in many ways is more interesting than some of the in-ring action that you see on the show. Because you see so much of that, right? There's a lot of great in-ring action in AEW wall-to-wall really so you become i don't want to say desensitized to it but you expect it and then all of a sudden you know a guy like chris jericho comes out and cuts you know a world-class promo now you're getting something that you can't get anywhere else 
And that's the thing that makes them different. And if they keep capitalizing on that without going too far into the WCW bag of tricks, I think they're going to be great. For example, I'd hate, not hate, I would caution them to not do too many WCW legacy pay-per-views. I mean, for example, if they came out with Halloween Havoc, and I don't know if that's trademarked or not trademarked, I guess I should probably check that out as soon as I get off this podcast with you. But, you know, that's a great, great, very similar to Bash at the Beach. That's a legacy pay-per-view, a ton of money and airtime was spent, you know, promoting that pay-per-view over decades. So, and, and that's where the equity and the value is. But if AEW were to add that to their catalog of pay-per-views, I think then they're running the risk of being, I don't want to say WCW light, but a version of WCW. And I don't think that's in their long-term best interest because that's no longer an alternative. You're going back. You know, you're going backwards, not forwards. They need to create their own unique, really cool branded events that, that made Bash at the Beach so cool. You know, what made Halloween Havoc so cool? It wasn't just the name. It was some of the things that happened in, in, in those pay-per-views that really helped create that brand equity. And if I was, you know, if I had a conversation with anybody at AEW, which I guess we're having right now indirectly, is, yeah, if you're going to do that, do that, but figure out ways to make those pay-per-views unique or you run the risk of, you know, looking backwards a little too, too much. Well, let's look back with a question from Michael. He says, how did the business relationship between you and Jason Hervey come about on the exterior? It always looked like a modern odd couple to me. <laughs> uh, well, it came, you know, Jason, who many of our listeners probably know, and some may, may not. Jason was a pretty successful, not pretty, very successful television star uh, as a kid in Los Angeles. Jason started doing uh, television commercials over in Japan when he was like four or five years old. Uh, that's how he got his start of the business. And his mother, Marsha, who you know I, I love dearly, she's passed away now, but she was just a great, great lady. I, I got along with her. So I got along with her better than I got along with Jason. We used to have a blast together. She's so much fun, so full of life, such a great outlook on life. She, but she was an agent. Uh, a small, she had a boutique uh, agency in Los Angeles, and she specialized. Uh, I mean, she had you know adult stars, but she really specialized in kids. So that enabled you know, Jason as a young kid to have, you know, access advantages, knew the right people, but at a very young age, you know, I can't remember the name of the movies that Jason was in, but you know, he was in a couple Pee Wee Herman movies and, you know, he, he did a lot of stuff before he was 10, 12, 14 years old. And then he became a, a, a really uh, well-known star in the ABC series called Wonder Years, which, you know, won a couple Emmy awards. It's actually in the, I think it's called the Smithsonian Institute of Television Arts or something in Hollywood. I mean, it was a really, really successful series. And long, not long before, but before I came to um, WCW, Turner Broadcasting had been negotiating for the syndication rights. So ABC had the first run. Uh, of of what are years obviously on the ABC network, but then they sold or they licensed the reruns to Turner Broadcasting. And when that 
transaction was going down, Jason, you know, as a part of the the ABC team, you know, was in Atlanta doing a little bit of press. Jason grew up as a wrestling fan in, in Los Angeles. Uh, Jason's dad would always take him to, you know, the Olympic Auditorium and watch wrestling. So Jason was a huge fan growing up in L.A. So when Jason came to uh, Atlanta to uh, promote the, the Wonder Years Turner Broadcasting syndication deal and, and the presser that went along with it, uh, he went over and, you know, hung out and watched some wrestling at center stage. Uh, wasn't Didn't take long for Dusty, <laughs> Dusty Rhodes, to go, hey, wait a minute, you know, we got to, and this was smart on Dusty's part, to, you know, this is a, a young kid who's a star of an ABC show. He's a huge wrestling fan. Let's get him involved. So before I even got to WCW, Jason actually predated me, I believe. Um, Jason was doing stuff on camera with Dusty Rhodes and Paul E. Dangerously, or, AE, or a.k.a. Paul Heyman, or the other way around, I should say. Paul Heyman, a.k.a. Paul E. Dangerously. Uh, Terry Funk. Terry Funk is Jason Hervey's godfather. Really? But you, but you didn't know that. Or at least that's what Jason told me. Now, who knows? I wasn't at the ceremony, so I can't vouch for it. But... Um, that's what I, I've always heard from Jason. Hey, but, how does that happen? Like his his well, mom was a wrestling fan. I don't know, bro. I never got into it. With That's got to be just fucking kidding around. Mm, I don't know. I think I think our listeners and and you know some of your crack research assistants over there at uh, Conradison should look into that. Yeah. Ask Ask Terry Funk, but so Jason was already in. When I say in, he wasn't under contract, but he was already involved and in having a great time doing stuff on camera. Dusty was using Jason in a. When I say using, utilizing Jason, who was dying to get involved and loved every minute of it. Uh, you know, you got an ABC, you know, network TV star that wants to be a part of your show. Great. What's wrong with that? He's a kid. Even better. Um, I got to 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 WCW, and by that time, Jason had was in a relationship with uh, Missy Hyatt. <laughs> I'm not even going to comment on that. Um, they, they had been in a relationship. I was an announcer. Um, I got to be friendly with Jason, just casually, you know, talking to him. He, he was a very smart kid. I call him a kid because I don't know how old he was at the time, probably 19, 20, maybe younger. A uh, smart kid with a lot of relationships and a lot of, you know, business acumen. By the time he was 20 years old, he'd already been in the entertainment business for 16 years. And both sides of his family uh, had been in the entertainment business for generations. One of Jason's uncles, Howie, um, was actually the business manager for like Clint East, still is, for Clint Eastwood and at one time, Barbara Streisand and Jack Nicholson and some of the, you know, really massive, massive Hollywood, you know, movie and TV stars back in the 60s, 70s and 80s. So Jason, just by virtue of the proximity of all that intellectual in entertainment, Hollywood horsepower, was a really, really bright 20 year old. And one night he and I were talking about WCW and, you know, cr you know, we were both creative people. Jason, very creative guy. And I had had this idea. Uh, for a kid's game show called Kids Team Challenge that I wanted to develop and pitch. And I showed it to Jason, and he went nuts over it. He and I ended up going to the Fox Network. 
Uh, there was a lady there by the name of Molly Miles. Molly was the head of Fox Kids Network. No longer exists, but it did back then. Fox Kids Network at the time, now we're talking about 92, I think, 91, 90, 92, 93, somewhere in there. Fox Kids Network on, on Fox Network was the Saturday morning block. So you'd get up, you'd turn on Fox, and it was cartoons and kids shows till about noon. And, and a block in the television industry refers to a period of time, let's say 8 to noon or 10 to 1. But this was an 8 to 12 kids block. And we pitched the show to Molly Miles, and Fox Network bought it. We went, holy shit, this is great. We were excited. We're going to be television moguls together. And that's when our relationship really started to go from just being kind of passive, casual acquaintances that saw each other at TV once in a while to, hey, let's let's put our heads together and, and, and create some TV shows because we, we worked really well together that way. That's, uh, that's a fascinating story that I don't think a lot of people knew. And I didn't know there would be so much good meat on the bone with the Jason Harvey relationship. Uh, the guy uh, oh, there, oh, there, there's so much more, but what we won't go into it today. We'll save it for another podcast. Uh, Mike Whitaker, um, wants to know the last time you were with WWE, was it ever discussed about the possibility of you perhaps being an on-screen character? No, as a matter of fact, and I don't want to overstate this and make this sound like, you know, I drew a line in the sand or it was a serious point of negotiation, but I made it clear when they first reached out that I, I wasn't interested. And I'm not sure that they were either, by the way, I don't want to make it sound like they came to me and said, yeah, but you know, I want you to be able to be on TV. I don't think that that was the intent uh, on WWE's side, but if it was, I shut it down almost immediately before the discussions ever really got too far down the road because I just, you know, I just, uh, I don't want to say been there, done that, because if the opportunity came along today and I felt like it was a, a fresh or interesting at least take and it wasn't same old, same old, kind of like I was talking to you about before. You know, with with AEW using you know WCW legacy pay per view brands, if, you know the audience, and it, you know it was brought up. It has been brought up in the past. Why don't you do it? Why don't you you know go back and you know reprise that character? You know, oh, it'd be so great if you showed up and surprised everybody. And it would be, the audience would go nuts. You know, when I walked out on stage, uh, one of the I don't know, what was it two years ago for a Raw reunion or whatever yeah. it was, it was. You know, the reaction I got was fantastic. And I know that if I came out in the right situation today, um, yeah, the audience would react. It would be a big pop and everybody would be excited. And then the following week, they'd be, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's great to see him back on TV. Six months later, it'd be, fuck. Oh, we've been there. We've done that. Oh, and it, it would it would diminish in value. My, my character. So I, it's one of the reasons why I don't want to do it is because I know that my, at least my instinct tells me that my experience tells me that people would love it initially and they would grow tired of it very quickly unless my character was unique and different than the character that they watched during the Monday night wars. If I came out and did the, you know, power hungry, sleazy, smarmy, you know, cocky, arrogant, you know, GM, like I said, everybody get excited for about a week or two, maybe three. And and I think after three weeks, it'd be like, oh, okay, been there, done that, seen that. Okay, give me something new. So I made it clear 
right off. I mean, almost initially, you know, somebody asked me, I'm not going to name names. Somebody says, okay, what, what magic wand? You can, whatever role you want, what would it be? And I made clear on that, in that first conversation, what it wouldn't be is anything on camera. Anything behind the camera, I can, I can, you know, find a way to get really excited about depending on what it is. But the on-camera thing is too much of a been there, done that. Like I said, caveat, I'm keeping the door open for myself, obviously. If And I don't think I don't think it'll happen. But if there was, if I could come up with a character, which I don't think I can, but if I could, that I felt was like, wow, that would be really cool. And that's different. I'd do it in a heartbeat. I'd be, I'd be pushing myself or, you know, begging you to push me. <laughs> but... I, you know, I don't think it's there. I think at this stage of my life and this, the state of the business, you know, that the kind of stuff is in my rearview mirror. Interesting question here, uh, just sort of from a fantasy booking standpoint. And I know we have fun with that sometimes. Fintan Riley writes in, if you had the WWE roster today and you're, so it's today's WWE roster in WCW 96. And you were starting the NWO angle. Which three guys would you pick, and why? Oh, that's always such a tough one. But I, it's a little easier to answer now than it was a year ago because I get those questions, you know, occasionally, and I, I, I usually kind of beg off and <laughs> try to just move on. But here's here's one guy I know I would have in the uh, on that roster is Randy Orton. Yeah. I've always loved Randy Orton's work. I've always enjoyed his promos. But I forgot until I went back to WWE and and you know I didn't work with Randy much. He, we didn't interface, you know, we just wasn't necessary. Um Randy Randy I think is highly rated as he is and well respected as he is. I don't think he gets nearly the respect that he should for being the amazing worker that he is. When I say worker, I mean performer and talent. Sure. He is, he has it. I mean, he can say more with a, with a, with a look in the ring than most guys can in a six minute promo. I mean, he's just, he is so flawless and fluid and believable and versatile as a character that I, he would be my, he'd be my number one just because he could carry it in, in just about any way, shape or form necessary. He could, he could play whatever role he needed to play and he could do it as well, or probably better than anybody in the industry in the last 10 years. Let's fantasy bucket for a minute. We're going to have Randy Orton show up. He's going to be your Scott Hall. Who's guy number two. Who's going to be Kevin Nash. Uh, people shit all over me for saying this just because they've been preconditioned to do so. But I think Roman Reigns yep. with, with a character overhaul with a GIF completely different version of Roman Reigns that was the antithesis of the character that we've been watching now for a couple of years done right could be just awesome. You know, we're checking all the boxes so far because your first two names are exactly who I thought of. Let's see if we can go three for three. We're going to have the big reveal. Who's the third man? Ooh, that's a little tougher. This is a no brainer to me. 
here. Okay, this is super fantasy booking. Yeah. Okay. And I know people aren't going to believe this, but this is a cannabis-free idea. Huh. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm not high. You're going to think I am, but I'm not. But if you could get me a chicken shit Brock, Brock Lesnar, mm. if you could get me a guy like Brock Lesnar that would actually work like a re- – now when I say – look, his work is his work. He's been hugely successful. He's a major attraction anywhere in the world. I'm not taking anything away from him. But you give me that character that kind of was able to take on that Hulk Hogan chicken shit heel that made Hulk Hogan work so well as a heel. Okay. We're good. You know, I know he's not a full timer, but my answer would have been John Cena. The idea that John Cena finally tells the fans to stick it after all these years, I think is parallel to Hogan's story. No, I absolutely agree with that. I didn't go to John Cena because for all intents and purposes, he's no longer, he's like the rock. Yeah. He shows up at WrestleMania and tells everybody how much he loves and he does, you know, shares how much, you know, wrestling is meant to him and how much he loves it. And I know he's sincere about that. And then he, then he disappears again for another year. So I, you know, I, I didn't think of John in, in terms of a current roster, but no doubt. I mean, it, it would, John would John would be a better choice than Brock, but if John wasn't available because he was off making movies and becoming a huge star, give me a chicken shit Brock Lesnar and I'm I'm a pretty happy son of a bitch. Ryan Connolly has a fun question. He says, You, Bruce, JR, Tony, Arn, and Conrad play a night of poker. Who goes home the winner? Okay. Well, I've never played cards with any of you. Uh, but I, I, I would, I would put my money on you. <laughs> I'm a, I, 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 I would, I'm a horrible poker player. I know I'm a horrible po- poker player. I'm way too aggressive. I just always have been. And I played at a couple celebrity poker tournaments. I played with Jeff Gordon. He had a celebrity uh, poker tournament in, uh, in Las Vegas several years back. And, and I played with him and Tony Stewart. Um, I also played, and actually, a guy by the name of Chris Moneymaker. Do you know oh, who Chris yeah. is? I, I know who, who that is. Do you know Chris? Yeah. Yeah. Chris, I, I got uh, somebody reached out to me to play in a celebrity poker tournament. This is before the Jeff Gordon tournament. And I had never played a hand of Texas Hold'em in my life. I've never really played cards. I've never been able to sit still long enough and get interested in playing cards. There's not enough physicality in it for me. And I, so I, I, you know, not knowing how to play, um, Chris said, Hey, I'll, I'll teach you everything you need to know in about an hour and a half. Well, Chris, you don't understand. I, I've never played a hand of cards. I don't, you know, I, I think I played strip poker once when I was 19. That's it. And I was motivated. <laughs> that was a whole different deal. I uh, goes, no, no, I can teach you everything you need to know. So I sat down with Chris for, you know, a couple hours and just he just gave me the basics and he said, This is this is how you do it. I'm gonna coach you through it a little bit. Not when we're at the table, but I'll I'll play some hands with you and I'm gonna coach you through it. We'll see how it goes. And lo and behold, in my first celebrity poker tournament, I got right down to the wire. Just playing, you know, simple Chris Moneymaker, you know, Texas Hold'em one on one. 
And I and I got into it actually after that. Of course, I went, well, wow, this is pretty easy. And you know, Chris Moneymaker is my coach, and I'm pretty good at this stuff. And I actually started playing a lot of Texas Hold'em just for fun. I'd go to Vegas and play, and you know, I'd. Uh, I don't think I ever won a lot. I don't think I ever lost a lot. Just kind of hung in there and treaded water, but had a lot of fun in the process. Um, but once I started thinking I knew what I was doing and I kind of not forgot what Chris told me, but started using my own instincts and my own ideas about Texas Hold'em, I got my ass kicked. <laughs> I was I just, just, just got killed. So I've, I've come to the conclusion that I'm a lousy card player. Um, I call everybody's bluff, just my nature. Um, so I, I take me out. I don't think Tony, Tony, Tony's too easy to read yep. You know when he's having fun. So I'd, I'd take Tony out. So I'm out. Tony's out. Arn, I don't know about, you know, Arn, so you know, Arn, he's one of those guys you could sit at a table with and he'd, he'd call your bluff and you'd go, ah, fuck, I don't know if I, ah, I don't know if I want to go there with him. Cause he's, you know, he's so believable that if he learned probably the basics from a guy like Chris Moneymaker, like I did, I think Arn could be pretty deadly at a poker table. Uh, who else do we have? JR. Yep. Yeah. Fuck. I, no, I could be JR in poker. You talk about a guy that wears his emotions on his sleeve. Come on. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. JR. So don't get pissed when I say that, but I, I, I faced JR all day long in Texas Hold'em. He's too easy to read. So I'd, I'd give it to you. What about Bruce? Oh, Bruce would quit after about he'd he'd lose two hands and get pissed off and go drink beer or something. He wouldn't he wouldn't stick around. That's tremendous. Let's uh let's keep it moving here. Alex Thorne wants to know were we close to seeing Hulk Hogan versus Mick Foley in TNA? No. <laughs> no. I'm sorry, I don't mean to laugh. That's it's a fair question and, and on paper you would go, wow, two big names, you know, it'd be a great match, but uh by the time you know, when Hulk got to TNA, he could barely walk. We had a, you know, it was hard for him to get into the ring. It was, it was physically, you know, that the idea of him getting into a match was not going to happen. You know, he'd get into the ring if the situation was right and throw a big punch or something, but, or threaten to, but, you know, a match with a guy like Mick Foley, that would have never, ever, and Mick was pretty busted up too, by the way. So, uh, yeah, no, that, that never came up. Ju Yin writes in almost every time that Savage won the big gold belt in the Nitro era, it resulted in Hogan beating him the next day on Nitro. Did Savage have any resentment over that? And why was it always a quick transition? No, he, he, Randy never had any issues at all. Randy was a pro all the time. And I think if anything, Randy believed that that back and forth, and as did Hogan, as did we, and by the way, as proved out in the numbers, revenue and otherwise, um, that that formula worked, you know, it didn't work for everybody. Not everybody liked it. People would have liked to have seen something other than that. I get that. That's fine. That's fair. But if you go back and just look at the numbers, look at the dollars, look at the ratings, look at the attendance, look at the merch and tell me why it was such a bad idea. Don't tell me there was a better idea. Tell me why it was such a bad idea because it, it delivered. And I think Randy knew that Randy and Randy and Hulk were a little bit like Ric Flair and Hulk or Ric Flair and Sting, there's certain characters, certain talents, certain people that just 
you know, click in the ring. Part of it is their chemistry. Part of it is their styles. Part of it is the legacy that they've built up over the decades. Um, you can always go to it. That's why we went to Ric Flair and Sting so often. Not because it was a fresh match that no one had ever seen before. They certainly had. But they wanted to see it again. And we had, to a large degree, we had that same um, situation with, with uh, Mach and, and Hulk. Jaguar Slamson wants to know if you have any stories about Roderick McMahon, the uh, rarely talked about brother of Vince McMahon. I don't know why you have had any uh, stories about him. Did you ever try to do anything creatively with him when you were in WCW? Did you ever meet him at a WWE show? Lots of curiosity about Rod McMahon. I, I have, you know, until recently, I, I, I never even heard that there was a Roderick McMahon. So, uh, no. How did you hear it recently? I, I think I heard it on a dirt sheet or, or in a dirt sheet. When I say dirt sheet, I mean online. I don't mean it in a derisive way. Um, I, I mean, online, I read, there was some casual fleeting conversations about a Roderick McMahon, but I, and I found out subsequently that there truly is a, a Roderick McMahon. I think he lives somewhere in Texas and, from what I've heard or remember hearing a successful guy, but, um, has nothing to do with WWE. And that's all I know. Uh, I what do you know? What do you know? <laughs> do you know the Come story? On. Do you know the story? It's it, as we're literally, as we're having this conversation, it occurred to me in the middle of my part of it, that somehow you found Roderick McMahon and wanted him to come to a star cast. Did I tell you that? Or did Bruce tell you that? Bruce told me that. Yeah. Well, listen, here's the deal. When, when the whole undertaker star cast two thing happened, I thought, well, I can fix this. So, you know, WWE was trying to make it up to me and said, Hey, what do you want? And I said, I wanted Vince McMahon to come do a meet and greet. And we donate 100% of, uh, the take to uh, Connor's cure. And I would personally match it. And of course that got shut down. So, uh, I thought, you know what? Fuck it. They want to pull undertaker and they want to pull Kurt angle and Vince won't come fine. So <laughs> I tried to book Eric angle, um, Kurt's brother. And I tried to book, uh, Brian Lee, the famous under faker from SummerSlam 94. And then I found with a little bit of help from my friend, our mutual friend of ours, Rod McMahon. And I made him a pitch and we had a discourse back and forth. And, uh, then I got a, a frantic call from Bruce. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? Uh, word had gotten back around. So I that had, is, that is, and I'm putting myself over here and I shouldn't, but that is such an Eric Bischoff kind of, a <laughs> I admire you so much for that. I mean, really, that is a ballsy, smart, fuck you and hate it kind of move. I, I just love that. Well, it didn't work out, so we didn't talk about it. But when I saw the question, I thought, I wonder if Eric knows that story. And I thought, you know what? It's probably come up. Uh, and I was glad to hear that Bruce was like, you ain't going to believe what this dumb son of a bitch Conrad's trying to do now. I know that's how that went. That, yeah, me. there's more to that. And I'm, I'm not going to go into it because it's private conversation that took place within the walls of WWE's, which I've 
signed a document prohibiting me from discussing. But let me just, I'll, I'll put it this way. Um, I think if anything, it gained you respect. Let's just leave it at that. Okay. Because it's, it's a ballsy move. Well, you know, fuck it. Why not? And by the way, if it would have happened and, and I had Eric Engel and Brian Lee and Rod McMahon presenting a big check to Connor's Cure, that's a pretty fucking cool deal. It would have got you so much press. And by the way, what would, and I don't mean to be disrespectful or a jackass here, but isn't Eric Engel in jail? Yeah, that complicated the process. <laughs> I didn't know that until I got started. <laughs> I think there's a murder charge or something. In there. You know, what's wild is Eric was in trouble and it was nearly impossible to find Brian Lee. And, you know, with this underground railroad of wrestling guys, I know now I thought, oh, this won't be any problem. The easiest guy to find was Rod McMahon. And I'm like, how the fuck is this possible that this mythical figure that wrestling fans have heard about, but don't know anything about, and I can get him just like that. I can't find fucking primetime Brian Lee. What the hell? <laughs> well, primetime Brian Lee may have wanted to be hard to find for a reason. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe he had a little Eric Engel situation we didn't know about. Hey, so I need you to choose wisely here. This is from T Lee. If you had to choose only one. Stacy Keebler or Tori Wilson? Wow. Well, this is a deep thought here. I'm going Tori. Really? Yeah. I mean, look, that's like saying, you know, Toro or Mirigai. You don't know what that is, do you? No, I have no idea what you just said with those English words. Tor I don't Tor think. Toro is like one of the highest grades of quality tuna you could get at a sushi bar. Miragai is rare, hard to find when it's fresh, but it's great. Those two are my two favorite pieces of sushi. One is not better than the other. They're just different enough to both be two of my favorites. And that's exactly the way I feel about that question. But I think if I could only have, like if, if, if the world was coming to an end while I was sitting at a sushi bar and the Grim Reaper came up to me and whispered into my ear, this is the last piece of sushi you're ever going to eat. And I had to pick between Toro and Mirugai. I would probably pick Mirugai, but I would have tears in my eyes when I did it. You're on a roll this morning. Oakland bash bro writes in who's the worst NWO member ever Vincent, Brian Adams or other VK wall street's gotta be on the list somewhere, but uh, who's your, who's taking it for you? Who's the worst. Wasn't Horace in the NWO for a minute. Yep. Yep. There you go. There's your sign. <laughs> uh, Rusty Shackelford wants to know when was the last time you enjoyed some good chocolate cake? I know you don't listen to JR's podcast, but he's told us before that he and Bobby Heenan in the WWF had a nickname for uh, marijuana and it would be chocolate cake. So when was the last time you enjoyed some chocolate cake? Hmm. It's been a couple months, maybe. No, no. I think I took a hit off somebody's vape pen in Baltimore when we were sitting at the bar, didn't I? Yes, you did. All right. Yeah. That would have been it. Yeah, one, I uh the one, one one hitter, that's all it was. 
but I, I must say I've never seen you choke and cough so much in my life. So, well, it's cause I don't smoke. It was fun you know, to I, see a professional at work. Yeah. I don't smoke. That's the thing. You know, and I, look, if, if I'm going to want to catch one, a uh, 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 weed buzz, um, I'll eat like a gummy or a cookie or some other edible because I can't stand inhaling things. Now, no. once in a while, every once in a while I'll have a cigar. Just, I don't know why. But it's rare. Um, but for me to try to, you know, I've never smoked cigarettes. I've, I've never been able to. I never smoked weed all through high school and college. Not because I had anything against it or because I didn't like the I mean, I tried it a few times, but I could just never inhale. My, I just couldn't do it. So, Yeah, I'm anti-smoke as well. But uh, as you know, there's quite a cast of characters who follow me around for my StarCast events. And I'm grateful to have their support. But some of those guys have interesting vape pens. You know, and uh, now vape pens are a little easier than you know typical you know weed out of a pipe or, or a joint, but it's still unless you're used to it, you know. Now I I saw that cat. I'm not going to mention his name. This son of a bitch spent a lot of time on that vape pen. <laughs> he, he was he, he was a pro's pro. Yeah, no doubt about that. Uh, Nicola. Right, in. Can you talk about how you supposedly stole money from the music in WCW? Uh, I know what he's referencing here. I'm sure you've seen the reports over the years that allegedly you cut a deal with a quote unquote third party music company to redo all the music for WCW and then cut a deal to license that music at a crazy high fee. And essentially you're the evil genius who can play both sides because you have an ownership stake in the music company. And you're also the person who makes those decisions on behalf of Turner and WCW. So you essentially awarded yourself a fat contract. I don't think you and I have ever talked about that on the air, uh, but that narrative has been out there for a long time. What say you? Honestly, I've never heard that. I, I mean, I've heard a lot of crazy shit and by the way, that's impressive crazy. I mean, that's like a well thought out crazy and a, not that I would have done that when I worked at Turner Broadcasting, because I, obviously I would have been fired. I probably would have been prosecuted. Um, nobody at Turner would have uh, above me would ever uh, have allowed that to happen. So the, the premise, uh, as interesting as that story is, and um, flattering to a degree as it is, because it's really fucking smart. If I was able to pull it off. I would have never been able to pull that off, nor would I have attempted to pull it off, even if I thought I could. It's just, I don't, I don't know where people come up with it. Well, I do actually, for the most part, where people come up with this kind of stuff, but, uh, never happen. You know, the only third party music companies that, that I can remember off the top of my head that we did business with one was called Tommy boy records, which was a really big and successful, uh, record distributor at that time or record label at that time and we had entered into a deal to do something with tommy boy but it wasn't wcw music it wasn't to create our music it might have been to distribute some of wcw's original music on their label that 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 i do recall uh, fragments of but we never hired uh now we did one-offs you know i think we we may have tried something with metallica at one point um, but there was never any, you know, contract in place for a third party company to create our, our music bed 
or, or catalog that I had a financial interest in. That's complete bullshit. Chris Dunn writes in a pet owner's question. How did your dog adjust from living out in the middle of nowhere to living in a big city? I know the more distractions my dog has, the longer it takes her to do her business. Yeah, that's well, um, it, she, she, look, she, Nikki, uh, my Australian catalog, she's two and a half years old. Context is king here. Australian cattle dogs are super high drive dog. These dogs are bred to work cattle out in, you know, the, the deserts and some of the most extreme conditions in Australia. They're, they're an extremely tough, physical, active, high power breed and very intelligent as well, which is great. But if you take a dog like that, that's bred that way with those characteristics and then put them in a two bedroom apartment in downtown Stanford, they, they start, they start to get a little nuts. And what Nikki did, she didn't go nuts. She didn't become destructive. She wasn't chewing things up. You know, none of those things didn't manifest in that way, but she actually started getting, I could tell she was depressed. She became, she was lethargic, just like she was bored. I know the feeling (laughs) really. She was just bored and she handled well. I had no problem, you know, maintaining her and taking her outside and taking care of business and all that. So that, none of that was tough, but it was tough seeing her as bored as she was. Um, so she adapted, but not willingly. And I, I think over time, it probably would have been a challenge for me. I might've had to find her a temporary home until I was ready to leave Stanford where she could be out and just, you know, be the dog that she was bred to be because it wouldn't have happened in an apartment in downtown Stanford. And I was gone so much, you know, I mean, I was, I'd leave the house at nine in the morning and oftentimes wouldn't get home till midnight, two, three, sometimes four o'clock in the morning. Um, so that left, you know, my wife and the dog, (laughs) it's, it's, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a good situation for anybody. The goddamn candy man writes in, what were you and Hulk's thoughts about the rumor the Dixie was trying to bring in Paul Heyman to run creative while you guys were in TNA. Um, it, it wasn't a rumor. I think she did have conversations with Paul. I, I wasn't a part of them and I don't think we talked about them. Uh, I mean, Dixie did, you know, she let me know. It wasn't like she was doing it behind her back. Um, I had worked with Paul in WWE and despite the, you know, the storied legacy of, you know, the hatred and back and forth and the competition and all the things that went on between Paul and I, some of it highly fabricated, some of it true. Um, I, I got along with Paul. I thought Paul was brilliant. Still do, by the way, I think probably more now than I did even when I worked with him in WWE, cause I've had a chance, you know, in the last four or five months or three or four months to, to spend more time talking to him in depth. Paul's an amazingly talented guy. He really, really is. I've got nothing but the highest respect for Paul. And even when, you know, Dixie was talking to him and suggesting to bring him in, I was fully supportive of it. Or could it be a man? I mean, you know, with his connections, you would, and the people who were sort of loyal to Paul and, and, and self-proclaimed themselves to be Paul Heyman guys. It could have looked like a different company. Let's talk about somebody who was there. Uh, Skipper writes in, what are your thoughts on AJ Styles and him as a performer overall? I certainly think he was TNA's crown jewel during his run with them and is arguably one of the top performers in the world today. What was your interaction like with him during your time in TNA? 
I think if you sat down with AJ and asked him, I think he and I would probably end up seeing it closely the same way. I think when I got into TNA, because I never watched the product, you know, I wasn't, I mean, I knew of it. I probably watched a couple minutes of it here or there, but I was like not at all familiar with the talent or, or the stories or anything that was going on in TNA until I came close to actually going to work there. And then I had to kind of figure it out and spend some time with it. But I think AJ's perception of me then may have been, I say may, because he and I never really talked about this. I think he may have kind of thought, oh, great, they're bringing in somebody else, you know, WCW. Keep in mind, Dixie was bringing in, you know, she brought in Booker T, she brought in Kevin Nash, she brought in Christian, she brought in Sting, she brought in Kurt Angle, she brought in Mick Foley, she brought in Jeff Hardy. You know, there was a there was a lot of people that had come into TNA long before Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff did that had kind of created the, oh, they're just trying to bring in other people's top guys. And I think when I got there and Hulk got there, because I wasn't familiar with, with AJ, I mean, I knew who he was when I got there, but I, I didn't know him well enough as a performer and as a person and as a character to have an opinion about him. You know, and, and for me... It it took me it took me a good five, six, eight months before I started seeing potential in people um in, in TNA and seeing, you know, possibly other ways of presenting their characters, their stories. Because you've got to get to know somebody. It's not like you can run them through a cookie cutter and say, okay, this AJ style guy's here. Yeah, he flies around a lot, he's really good. Let's run him through this cookie cutter and crank out Shawn Michaels or let's run him through the cookie cutter and crank out Ric Flair, or let's run him through this cookie cutter and crank out Sting, right? Or versions thereof, those, those people, aforementioned people. You got to get to know somebody and see where their strengths are, where their weaknesses are, where their potential is. And when I first got there, I, I was just evaluating. I wasn't, I, I, I wasn't engaged enough, familiar enough, or had made up my mind about anybody. I was just there to kind of evaluate. And I think, Perhaps AJ, and I say perhaps because I don't know this, but if I was in AJ's shoes, I would have looked at someone like me coming in and taking the position that I took and felt like, oh, he just doesn't appreciate me or he doesn't appreciate the, the current talent roster or he doesn't have enough respect for us. And it wasn't that. It's just that it, it takes a while to see the potential, a different potential. It's easy to come in and just have people doing the same shit they've been doing and building on that. But I think, you know, Dixie's the reason, and I want to say Dixie, Spike TV, Dixie Carter didn't bring in Eric Bischoff. Well, she did in a sense. Spike TV paid for Eric Bischoff and Hulk Hogan. Spike TV wanted Eric Bischoff and Hulk Hogan uh, as much as Dixie did, maybe more in some respects. And they're the ones that paid the freight. But I I think there was probably a little bit of resentment on AJ's part uh, or just indifference. But fast forward, after about a year or so, starting to really work with AJ, working with him on his promos, working with him on storylines, we started to click a little bit more. And a lot of that had to do with AJ. AJ was very, very open-minded. He really wanted to, to break out of the, you know, the big the big thing in TNA at the time was, oh, he's homegrown. Well, what the fuck? He's not an ear of corn or a tomato, for God's sake. How much equity really is in homegrown in a small little 
you know, promotion that hardly anybody watches. How much value is there in that? Um, the, the value in a guy like AJ is making him bigger than that. And AJ, AJ was very open to, to trying things. And I know this is going to be, people are going to be listening to this. And they're going to go, oh, he's a fucking idiot. Oh, Bishop doesn't know what he's talking about. I get it. That's your opinion. Stick it up your ass. I don't care. But the storyline that we that we created for AJ. Oh, who was the chick's name? The the woman that oh, AJ Claire, Claire, whatever. Yeah. Right. Okay. I understand that that was a you know a failed storyline in many respects. But I think in some distorted way, the way I look at things sometimes. I think that storyline did more for AJ as a performer than a lot of things he was doing up until that point because it forced him for the first time to become a character, not just to become a great technician and a guy that goes out there and flies around and cuts a halfway decent, you know, pretty much the same as everybody else's promo. But he went out there and he became, he had to act. He had to learn how to step outside of himself. And that's a hard thing for performers to do especially in the wrestling industry. They're so, they only know what they know, right? And unless you're willing to kind of try something else and explore another aspect of your character or step into a completely unfamiliar role, you're never going to know what your potential is. And as, as arguably bad as that storyline was for a variety of reasons, the performances that AJ put into it, I think arguably are some of the best of his career, not because they generated the most money or they were the most interesting, but because I think his character took a giant leap forward because it was the first time he really stepped out of that homegrown AJ Styles, you know, flying around super technician. He had to become more than that. And I, I like to think, you know, and our relationship really blossomed after when I say blossom, it's not like, you know, we're tight going out and having dinner together and things like that. But we became pretty friendly uh, after that. And the trust and the working relationship really um, improved dramatically you know, after that storyline. Follow-up question here uh, from some other shows we've done in the past. And I don't think we've talked about this with you, but whew, this is a weird one. The cats writes in any stories about Kevin Sullivan's foreskin. The fuck? What? <laughs> there's, there's famous stories out there. Allegedly. One of which happened at Sabatino's way back in the day. Somebody's wife's birthday. Maybe it was Gary Juster. I don't remember. And, Gary uh, Juster had a wife. Okay. So maybe not. Somebody's wife was having a birthday party at Sabatino's and, uh, Kevin Sullivan in the middle of all the drinking and carrying on disappears into the bathroom, comes out wearing his ring robe, goes over to said wife, opens the robe and says, blow out your candle. And he has a lit candle and his foreskin. Never heard it. Thank God I wasn't there. I just can't, I don't even want to picture, I'm, fuck, I'm not going to be able to get that visual out of my head now. And I'm really, really upset about that. Yeah. Who wrote, who, who wrote that question in? Uh, D U K A T Z, but it's, it's out there. I mean, 
Jim Ross has told the story before. I think Tony Schiavone's told the story. Uh, it's yeah, this is a real thing. Welcome to R A S S L I N S wrestling. Wow. Uh, the big F and gorilla writes in, did you understand the impact that the Nintendo 64 WCW versus the world game had in bringing in the 18 to 24 demo to the product? It came out my freshman year of college. And so many non-fans became fans because of that game. In my opinion, it was uh, really underrated as far as its impact in regards to the Monday Night War. Absolutely did not um, anticipate the impact that the N64 game would have. And I wish I had, but I think it's a great example. And in a, in a, Well, what I did learn, and I think why this example is such a great example of why it's so important to extend your brand into platforms and other genres outside of your core business, outside of your core brand. And in my case, it was WCW and Nitro. Why it's a great idea to, for example, do Divas on the E Network because that show on that network is going to attract an entirely different audience that otherwise would not know who a WWE character was. And by having that show on that network, just like having WCW's content and characters on a platform like Nintendo 64 at that point, reached a whole different audience that brought them into the WCW product. So does having your characters, for example, on the Eat Network and Divas do the same for WWE to this day. That's why it's so important. It was important to me uh, back in WCW to do movies, to to try to get our content. You know, it's one of the reasons why we did did the Jeff Foxworthy show and uh, we did the Arliss show and we did as many shows as we could outside of WCW, not because I was, you know, a Hollywood freak and couldn't wait to be in Hollywood, which was the narrative, obviously. It wasn't that. It was to extend our brain into other forms of entertainment. In this case, N64 was a game, but it's still another form of entertainment, as we know now today, um, to to attract an audience that otherwise wouldn't have tuned into WCW. And it worked. But I didn't I didn't foresee it, to answer the question. It wasn't like I sat in a room and went, hmm, now if I was a really smart guy, I would have our characters in this new N64 platform because I know that it's going to attract this whole new audience, blah, blah, blah. I didn't have that foresight. I wish I was that smart, but I wasn't. Demetrius Blessing Game writes in, why did you never schedule a pay-per-view on the same day as the WWF? Because we couldn't. Yeah. Uh, DirecTV wouldn't have never allowed it. Uh, it wouldn't have been possible, nor would it have been possible for WWE to schedule a pay-per-view on the same day as WCW for the very same reason. Uh, T and D 23 writes, do you think we'll ever see a time when big men will feature again? It seems the likes of Sid and Ash, et cetera, wouldn't fit in with today's style. Well, that's a really great question. You know, and if, if, if you kind of take a macro perspective, meaning, you know, up there around 3000 feet and look down and, and, and try to see the picture as big as you can, I would suggest that. Everything is cyclical. Music, fashion, politics, entertainment. Things tend to go from one extreme kind of direction and then eventually over a period of time it kind of 
swings back to an extreme in the other direction, and then finds itself kind of slowly settling into the middle. I, I, it's that's been my observation, at least with, with with like music and politics and even entertainment. Go back and look. For example, when reality TV first started, you know, making the scene, I'm going to call it late 98, perhaps 2000, is when it really, really picked up. At that point, and I was working in Hollywood at that point, I had gotten out of wrestling and Jason and I were actively, you know, developing our own production company and creating and pitching shows to networks and all that stuff. The, the word on the street in Hollywood in the early 2000s through 2005, 7, 8, even into 2010, was that scripted television was dead. People thought traditional scripted television was a thing of the past because reality television, here's an example, a form of entertainment that typically had been, for the most part, sports, scripted, comedy, general entertainment. Now there was a sudden shift, dramatic shift, to reality television. The pendulum, pendulum swung completely to the left. And the, the pendulum swung to the left because, number one, reality television was new to the American audience. Reality, unscripted, whatever you want to call it, was a pretty successful form of entertainment in Europe. But when it was finally imported here to the United States, and I think most importantly, um, Survivor Series, when Mark Burnett adopted, I think it was a UK version, might have been from Denmark, I'm not sure where it was from originally, but when Mark Burnett brought that format to the United States, and nobody wanted to touch it, by the way, you, you couldn't get a network to touch it. Mark Burnett had to guarantee the, 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 the ad sales in that series to even get it on the air, but when he did, it became this massive hit. Well, Hollywood did what Hollywood always does, is everybody went, oh, wow, that's working? Let's abandon all the scripted stuff and let's go do that. So number one, because it was such a hot new genre that was working at such a high level, and it was a brand new genre, and everybody wanted to be in that business. Well, what happened is it was harder and harder for scripted writers to get shows sold. Networks weren't investing in them, and that's another big issue with regard to television. Scripted programming, now with the exception of Survivor and a couple others that were massive, had massive budgets, but for the most part, you know, a, a, a reality show or a scripted show had a budget range of back in, we'll call it 2000 to 2007, had a budget range that would generally go from 500,000 to a million dollars an hour. A million being a very high end and unusual. So they generally hovered in the five to 750 range an hour. Compare, compare that to a scripted show at that time that probably had a budget range of 2.5 to 5 million an episode. Well, if you're a network and your job is to create as much volume as you can, where are you going to invest your money? You're going to put it over to this new thing called reality television. Well, that's an example of the entertainment business swinging to one direction. And if you go back and you go to Hollywood Reporter and you look at some of the, the, the headlines and the stories, there was a writer's strike. Well, that only exacerbated it at the time. Now networks were forced to take on even more and more reality because of the the uh, the, the uh, Screen Actors Guild, I guess, uh, strike or the Writers Guild strike that was going on. Now all of a sudden scripted television went away and everybody predicted scripted television is dead. We'll never see scripted television the way you know, we used to see it. 
Now, you know, what is it? Uh, we'll call it 17 years later. The pendulum has completely swung in the other direction to the right. And now the hottest stuff you see on television is scripted television. Some of the biggest, formerly, the only time you'd see actors with some of these names, Martin Scorsese just did a, just did a, a movie for Netflix, a streaming platform um, with Robert De Niro. I mean, now it's completely swung the other way, and the small screen or television for scripted is the place where it's at. And it, today, if you have to go out and sell a reality show, man, it is tough. The, uh, when Jason and I were at the peak of our success, we'll call it 2007 through, through 2010, 2011, even 2012, we had probably four or five shows going, I mean, sold in development or being produced a year. And, and making money hand over fist. And then all of a sudden, around 2014, 2015, 16 for sure, that pipeline completely collapsed. And now to this day, good friend of mine by the name of Tom Beers, going off track here, but that's what this show's about. Tom Beers is a very good friend of mine. Tom had a company called Original Productions. He created the original Monster Garage, Ice Road Truckers, Deadliest Catch, um, every dangerous testosterone vocational show you've probably ever watched on most of them likely was produced by Tom Beers. He became one of the most successful, other than Mark Burnett, and arguably was probably not far behind him, uh, other than Mark Burnett, probably the most prolific, non-scripted producer in Hollywood for probably 10 or 15 years. Uh, Tom went on to uh, become the American uh, president of Fremantle Entertainment that was based in, I believe, London at the time. Hugely successful. I, anyway, Tom and I were working on a project together about a year ago, year and a half ago, and we went out for dinner one night, and I said, Tom, you know, what motivates you? I mean, he's made more money than, he's just, the amount of money this man has made in the last 15 years is ridiculous. But he's still out there trying to pitch shows. Not, not to the same degree that he was, but he's still out there too. And I said, Tom, what motivates you now? He goes, what motivates me the most now is because it's almost impossible. If he said to me a year ago, a year and a half ago, he said, if I had to, if I was, if I had all the talent and the experience 15 years ago that I have today, but today I had to start my business, he goes, I wouldn't last six months because nobody's buying reality. Nobody's buying unscripted shows. It's all scripted. So I, I just went through that long-winded, circacious kind of example of how things shift back and forth to frame my response, which is, I think in time it will, because I think in time everything kind of swings back to a more familiar place and finds itself somewhat in the middle. But I think the industry has changed so much and the presentation of stories have changed so much and the emphasis on athleticism, which really started, not to pat myself on the back, on, in a big way back in the 90s with the Lucha Libres and a lot of the Japanese that we were bringing in and, you know, the, the cruiserweight division, all of which was by design. It wasn't by accident. I wanted a different type of presentation to balance the big man kind of traditional storytelling that we have been seeing for a couple decades. But I think that was the beginning. And now it's evolved from there where across the boards, you know, watching an EW, you know, episode and it's all, you know, highly athletic, you know, high risk, 
very dynamic, fast-paced kind of a presentation. But I think like everything else, there'll come a time when there's going to be that one big man that's got the charisma, that's got the story, that can capture the audience's imagination. And at a certain point, it will have been long enough since we had seen some of those big men that will actually feel refreshing. But I think we're a long way from there. Here's a fun question. I hope you're going to, I know you'll have a good sense of humor about it, but I had to ask it when I saw it. Lee Parker writes, what's the best thing in WWE catering and do pay-per-views have a better spread than regular TV? <laughs> uh, that's funny. I don't know how that, well, I know, yeah, once again, I know how that rumor got started. Um, it's ridiculous and, and it had, had nothing to do with reality like most of the stuff that, that gets out there like this. Um, but I will say what I did go to catering because I did eat while I was in the, <laughs> I, 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 I actually did have a meal or two while I was there. You know, when you, when you get there at you know, 11 o'clock in the morning and you're there till 11 o'clock at night, guess what? At some point during the day, yes, you're going to probably go to catering. And, and by the way, Paul Heyman probably spent more time in catering than anybody I know, but he was working when he was in there because when you go to a WWE event, this is another thing that people that have never been in the business um, don't realize you go to some of these venues, even some of the bigger venues, for example, look at Madison square garden, you know, big famous venue, you know, the, the amount of office space or working space or space in general is at a sheer minimum. You got a writer's room. Now, Madison Square Garden had a very nice writer's room. I shouldn't use that as an example, but you could go to any other, you know, arena, and your writer's room may be, you know, a ten by ten with a couple desks in it. You've got fifteen writers cranking out, you know, TV in there. There's no room to work. So if you want to have a meeting with somebody, if you want to talk about, you know, a potential storyline with somebody, or you want to go over, you know, somebody's promo with them, oftentimes the best place to do it isn't catering because it's the only place there's any room to sit down and have a conversation at a table. So between, you know, having to go there once in a while to eat and in Paul Heyman's case, when he was in catering, he was working. That's where he did his work. That's where I did some of my work. So that maybe hopefully will address the catering issue in reality. What's the best food? Come on. The best, the best food, uh, consistent. Look, I, I, you know, I've been to WWE catering where they had sashimi. Uh, I've been to WWE catering where they had some of the best steak I've probably had in a decade. There's a lot. Of, and there's some times when it's not great because all, you know, all these catering companies are all local. They're, they're not the same catering company that travels with them. At least I don't think it is. Um, actually, but, I think it is. I think it's a company called Dega. But they, they've got to bring a lot of their stuff in locally. Because, yeah, like for example, sure. when we would go, when we were in Louisiana, there was you know, there was gumbo, there was etouffee, there was I mean, it was all kind of you know, or New Orleans. You yeah, know, it was a lot of uh, local food. But it, you know, it varied. I I tend, what did I tend to eat the most of? You know, I tried to stick to as close as I could to a keto diet while I was there. So I, I stuck with the meat, a little bit of the chicken, stayed away from pasta, salad. For the most part, that was what I went after. I'd usually check out the, uh, I check out the beef selection first. Mike writes in hypothetically, you have a group of friends over What's your go-to item on the big green egg. Ooh, 
horrible time of year to ask me that because everything sounds so good to me right now that it's fall. Um, my go-to would probably be a reverse seared tenderloin. No argument from me. Uh, let's keep it moving with a question about World War Three. Ryan would ask, in a recent World War Three episode, Eric agreed that the three-ring format was better on paper than delivery. My question is, why go back to that same format three other times if that was your perception coming out of the first one? Well, good question. And, and the, the idea, I think, of World War Three was a good idea. The branding of it, the uniqueness of it, more of the uniqueness of it. Um, was a good idea because it was the one time a year we had this, you know, largest battle royal in the history of wrestling. That's it had a decent hook. The execution, particularly in the first one, because we had three different announced teams, that's like what it was at its height of clusterdom. Um, and what we tried to do is maintain the idea and the uniqueness of having something that was the biggest, you know, every year. With, with regard to the three cages and 60 man and all that, uh, but find ways to make it a little bit more viewer friendly. It wasn't that the idea was the worst idea in the world. It was that the execution of it was particularly the first one. And our hope was that we could kind of refine that execution to make it a little bit, uh, to, to improve it over the course of, you know, the next two or three that we did. Brendan writes in, Eric often refers to the importance of a three act structure and actually telling a story, whether it being wrestling movies or books, what are some of his favorite all time books and movies? Oh, wow. 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 As far as movies go, that's such a tough one. Cause every time I see a movie that I really like, I go, oh man, that's, a, that's the best movie I've ever seen. Hey, and let me recommend a good one to you. Megan and I just saw peanut butter Falcon the other day. And, um, it's a good, it's a good story. I think you and Mrs. B would like that one. We'll check it out. Yeah. Actually it's on, I think it's on Netflix. I know it's on Apple. So if you've got Apple TV, yeah. you can no, that's why I saw that. Yeah. Cause I've, we're in this uh, Airbnb here down in Clearwater, Florida, and I don't have all my normal television that I usually have access to. So I've been watching every documentary either on Netflix or Apple TV or HBO for the last four nights. Um, but yeah, I saw that and I'll definitely take a look at it. You know, the, I, the best one I've ever seen, you know, so many movies have made impressions on me, you know, throughout my life. Um, I, I think the movie that I saw most recently that I enjoyed the most was once upon a time in Hollywood. I, I love, first of all, it's based more or less on a true story or at least in part on a real story. But Quentin Tarantino did such a great job of presenting that story with the unique twist at the end that I was really, in fact, I, I watched it twice just to try to understand how he did it. The first time I was like, holy shit, that was great. But by the time when the movie was over, I wasn't paying close enough attention to the act structure and when the transitions to the acts were occurring that I couldn't really understand how he did it. So I went back and watched it again and broke it down a little bit more. You know, that was one of the, you know, the last movie I saw was the Joker. And I think that was a fantastic movie, not necessarily um, for, for, well, it was for a lot of reasons, but the acting of Joaquin Phoenix, I think is just otherworldly um, and probably just dominated 
the movie in so many different ways because it was so amazing that the story probably doesn't get enough credit as it should. Uh, went back and watched that one again for the same reason. I love that one as well. We should mention uh, that uh, even though that movie, you know, took a lot out of Phoenix, he said, "Hey, I'll never do this again. I'm not doing a, I'm not doing a sequel." You know, blah blah blah. Well, then it goes on, breaks all the records, highest grossing R-rated movie of all time now. That's past a billion dollars. They agreed to do the sequel. So there's going to be a sequel and it will be with Phoenix and, and your main man, Todd Phillips. Uh, can you spill any news about Todd Phillips? Well, I'm closer to the writer, Scott Silver, Todd Phillips. Scott Silver is a writer that worked with Todd, uh, and wrote with Todd, uh, on the Joker. Um, they're a writing team and, and Todd was obviously the director. Um, I, you know, I'm not going to disclose things that I shouldn't, but I think people are getting a little ahead of themselves based on headlines, which happens. Um, we'll see. We'll see. And that's about all I should say. I don't want to, I don't want to step outside. Okay. Well, I don't uh, want to, I don't want to step outside. These are great guys and I'm working with them on other stuff and I don't want to step out of my lane. Hollywoodreporter.com this past February reported Chris Hemsworth to play Hulk Hogan and biopic directed by Todd Phillips. So the guy who's doing the Joker movie that just broke all these records is allegedly working on a Hulk Hogan movie. So there you go. Let's, let's end it on something a little silly. Um, (laughs) I I can't believe I'm going to do this one, but I feel like it's too good to pass up. We're going to play F Mary kill with Tammy Sitch Sable and Stephanie McMahon. God, I hate you sometimes. <laughs> I saw that and I thought, man, I got to ask this one and we're going to go out with a bang. Let's see if we can get you in a little trouble today. Oh my God. Yeah. It's really tough, isn't it? For obvious reasons, I'd have to marry Stephanie. I mean, come on. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, come on. I mean, if if I wasn't happily married and didn't have the life that I have and was presented this, just from a purely, I don't know, business standpoint, and, and, you know, she's a beautiful woman. And I like Stephanie, by the way. I think she's... You know, I wish I would have been able to work with her a little more closely when I was there, but she's a very positive, supportive. She's, she's, she's really, I like her a lot. She doesn't get enough credit. She's, she does amazing things, by the way, uh, for WWE. But yeah, I'd, I'd have to marry Stephanie, you know, and I'm not even going to say, you know, I'm not going to even drop the consonant in association with Sable for fear that Brock will get wind of this <clears throat> and misinterpret it. But let's just say that say, uh, she that, would uh, not be killed. Sable she, would not be killed. I know I'd, I'd save that for Tammy and, you know, probably, well, I'll let it go at that. No, no. Yeah. I understand. You don't want, I mean, even though you're in Florida, he could find you. I mean, he's a hunter. So yeah. Oh God. That's probably and, a short and list. He, and he, and here, and here's the thing. It would be the last time I got laid because then I know I'd be dead. 
Well, that's going to wrap up our hashtag ask Eric anything. Uh, we're pretty excited because next week we'll be doing Ray Mysterio. It's been a while since we've done uh, a deep dive on a profile like that. Uh, we'll be coming at you on that one on December the 9th. On December 16th, we're going to do something fun. We're going to watch Bret Hart's WCW debut. We get to sort of armchair quarterback that booking, what, 22 years later? Uh, right before Christmas, we'll revisit Medusa dumping the title in the trash. And right before New Year's, it's Starcade 1993. We've got a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Keep up with all the action by clicking subscribe. Make sure to follow us on social media. We'd love to have your interaction there as well at 83 weeks. Pick up a t-shirt at ericbischoff.com. It is the perfect stocking stuffer this holiday season for the wrestling fan in your life. And if you haven't already, follow Eric on Twitter at ebischoff. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on Westwood One each and every Monday, 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.